Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. I'm your host, Simon Taylor. And today, well, I'm joined across the pond by the one and only Howard Marks. Uh, Howard has, of course, uh, had numerous roles in the gaming industry across Activision, Acclaim, uh, and now he is the founder of Start Engine. Uh, we're really lucky to be getting some insights from uh, Howard. Um, you're a pretty successful entrepreneur. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm so happy to talk to you from uh, West Hollywood, California. Uh, where I'm located. It's a, it's a long way across the pond. You're at the other side of the continent across the pond, indeed. Um, I'm, I'm so glad uh, to be speaking to you as well. Um, let's get started. Tell me the story about your time at Activision um, and what are the challenges of being uh, the CEO of such a big company going through, you know, uh, gaming wasn't the behemoth it is now with Fortnite and everything else that sort of coming out and uh, you know really being social phenomena. Um, back back uh, a number of years ago, that wasn't always the same thing. It wasn't because the medium where the games were being played are cartridges. And so people remember you had the Atari machine and then Nintendo. And these cartridges were, I don't know, 8 megabytes in size, 4 megabytes. Sometimes they've got to 16 megabytes. And there was very limited what you could do with it. And when we got involved, we decided, you know, what if we went with a new medium called the CD-ROM, which is now the DVD, by the way. And that's going to go away eventually because of the internet. And use that as the medium for making higher quality games that are more immersive. However, to do that, you have to take a leap of faith that cartridges are not going to be the mainstay. That was not obvious at the time. And that uh, people are going to be willing to make video game consoles with these CD-ROMs. It turns out the PC was ahead of the game at that time because you could buy it as an accessory and add it to your PC, uh, install some drivers, not that simple to do. But then when you did that, you were able to buy these games like we were making, like Zork and MechWarrior, and put them in your PC and play. But that did not satisfy the video gamer. So until Sony came up with their PlayStation, which had a CD-ROM built in, that was still, I would say, an underground type of gaming experience what happened was when sony did it then of course microsoft did it with their xbox and then so and nintendo followed as well the revolution the next generation of consoles just started and it was all about uh, better experiences with uh, better graphics three-dimensional graphics and we decided that would be our focus and so we got lucky that it ended up working that way I, I really think uh, there's probably a bit more than luck involved. I mean, if you talk about some of the, the challenges you had to overcome during during a really transformative period in what is now a massive industry, how do you hold together the culture of what starts out as being you know creative and enthusiast and relies on that core tenant of creativity? But as that company starts to scale, how do you deal with you know, scaling what is effectively a business um, and that has to turn profit and revenue and deal with publishers and deal with um, kind of, uh, you know, like a complex marketplace? Uh, what were your challenges and what did you face? Well, the main challenge was the retailers. So the retailers had all these cartridges in their on the shelves and they had to do something with it, right? They're not going to just take it and just uh, eat it. They would have to either send it back to the publishers like ourselves, or they would have to put it in a bin at a very highly discounted. And everybody basically believed that the, the business was dead. And 
they were wrong because the fans were out there. They were excited to play. They may not were, they, they, maybe the cartridges were overbuilt and a lot of the bad games that were built on cartridges were not selling and that created a, I'd say a bad feeling. On the other hand, as the new medium came out, there was a lot of excitement and the retailers jumped in uh, really strong and agreed to put more effort, more display of those video games. And as demand grew, they got more excited. So it, it did work. There was a transition. Building a large company like Activision, it was not overnight. It was every year another step. So first step would be clean up the retailers, make sure they're taking our new product. Then we need hits. How do you make hits? Well, you don't necessarily know how to make hits. You just have to make great games and hope the audience likes them. So that was basically the strategy was try to build higher quality games, spend more money behind them. At that point, early in the cartridge days, one person could make the entire game or a team of five, you know, one programmer, one artist, one designer, one musician. And we saw the transition where you're going to need maybe 30 people, 20 people on a game. So when we did McWarrior, we had 30 people instead of the usual five or seven. And that was a big risk as well. And then came the next generation of games, which you see today, where you need 100 or 200 people to make a game. Absolutely. And now you have studios all over the world, people working around the clock on games. Uh, you know, Rockstar, I think, have something like five, 600 on their AAA titles. It's, it's quite phenomenal how this has kind of really, really grown. And, and I guess you, you then went on from Activision and you went, to re, uh, went on to buy and revitalize, I believe, Acclaim. Um, and, and they were close to bankrupt, or I believe they were bankrupt at the time that you took them on. Like, that's quite a turnaround to take on. One, what, what attracted you to that challenge? And, and two, how, how did you get that done? Well, look, the Activision story was also a turnaround because we ended up buying it for $400,000. Uh, we bought out the largest shareholder that owned 30% for $400,000. So you can imagine that was a turnaround and a bankruptcy as well. Now, uh, using the same model, I went to a claim and I made, I saw they went bankrupt and they decided to liquidate the company. And you see that now with the Sears and Roebuck stories happening right now, which was the number one retailer in the world by far. They were the largest. And today they're bankrupt and they may be liquidated if the deal that there is being proposed to the trustees don't go through. I had a lot of experience in, in the bankruptcy world. So what I did is I went to the trustee for a claim and I said, look, I'll, I, I want to buy the whole thing. And the trustee said, great, make us an offer. I said, great here's $100,000. And they were laughing. They really laughed on the phone. They thought it was a joke. And I said, okay, fine. Well, I'll tell you what, um, why don't you send me a contract? So the trustee sends your contract and you fill it out. And if you're the first bidder, that holds you basically, I would say to the bid. And why would you do that? Because that allows you to be the first bid. So I decided I'm going to be the first bid. So I went in and said 100000 signed the paperwork, send it to the trustee of the court of bankruptcy, and they shelved it. You know, they were like, all right, who cares, right? And they were busy selling pieces and inventory. There was some real estate. There was some art, believe me, art. That was interesting. And in August of 2005, 
August, which is not the best month to do an auction. August, I think, was the fourth. They started the auction. And it was in, in Long Island, New York, which is not, you know, this is more of, I'd say, vacation resort. People are having a great time on their boats and on the beach. August 4th, they started the auction. The judge asked the trustee, is there a bid? He said, yes. The first bid is Howard Marks, 100000 so the judge says, okay, where are the other bids? And the trustee says, we have no other bids. The judge says, okay, that's the deal. Hammer down, won the whole thing. That was so bizarre, so strange. The next day, lawsuits start coming in, oppositions, but it's a court. You can't sue the, a bankruptcy court. You'd have to prove there was complete, you know, you know, misdeed by the judge. I mean, it's not, it's forget about it. Okay. So I had it, I want it. And then I decided to reposition a claim as an online game company, not as a, a maker of CD-ROM or DVD games that you retail with, you know, Walmart and all of and Sears at that time, I guess. And went to Korea to learn about how they did the free to play gaming system. So I was intrigued that free-to-play games were doing well, free, interesting. You're buying items inside of the game. At that time, that sounded crazy. The only thing that worked in the United States was a subscription model like World of Warcraft, where you pay $15 a month. That was it. The idea of downloading a game for free, no. you could. There was freeware, you know, like Doom, but if you wanted to play a multiplayer game, you had to pay subscription. And I thought that was a big barrier to entry. Why not? do it where you have an economy inside of the game. So I studied Korea, spent a few weeks there, came back with a few games and relaunched Acclaim as an online game company. That took a few years. We got to about 18 million players. That was not so bad. And then uh, a company came in, uh, which was part of Walt Disney, bought us and off we went. And then I got out within six months. I, I, I sp spent some time for the transition. Wow, it's uh, it's quite the story and and quite prescient as as I mentioned earlier. Sort of the Fortnite model now is the thing that uh, everybody's talking about. It's uh, you know the free to play within uh, internal economy in 2019 seems like oh yes of course, but in 2005 it was it was extremely rare. So um, sort of seeing around corners does seem to be a, a, something in the track record, which which means you've you've actually got a new venture. And so tell us what Star Engine is. What what do you guys do? Because you you've kind of flipped. From from building games to something quite different. Well, that's actually true. You're right with your comment. So after the acclaim story, I decided I wanted to help entrepreneurs achieve their dreams. So what I did is I built Start Engine initially as an accelerator. What is that? It's like a school for entrepreneurs. You go in, we invest money, we get equity, and then we help you navigate the difficulties of building a business we bring in mentors. We had 150 mentors. So we made 59 investments in three years. The problem was, and I didn't realize it at the time, it is so hard for entrepreneurs to raise capital. Why? Well, first choice is you go to the venture capital people, those, those funds, invest money. True, except that they only do 2,000 deals a year, and they're very particular as the kind of entrepreneur they're looking for. I call it the white male from Stanford. That's really the prototype of what they're looking for. I mean, you can look at it as Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook and Sergey Brin, you know, from Larry Page from Google. That's really what they're looking for. 
So what's left? The angel investor. Great. The angel investor, you got maybe 60, 70,000 active angels in the United States. Again, that's limited to maybe 10,000 deals a year. Now, keep in mind there are 600,000 companies are created every year in the United States to re replenish a pool of 5 million businesses. These are operating businesses. These are not sole proprietorships. These are real businesses. It's a pretty strong economy if you think about it. So the banks, no, the banks are not that interested. They want assets like a more like your house. If you have a house, they'll lend you against your house. And if you don't pay back, you lose your house. It's pretty cruel, pretty harsh. A lot of the young entrepreneurs, they don't have those, those assets. So what are they supposed to do? I saw a huge hole in the system, which is if you're not the white male from Stanford, and you're not, if you don't have the connections to rich angels, you're basically not able to raise capital unless you bootstrap the business. And we all know it's possible, but it's very hard, very hard. You multiply the difficulty by 10. So my goal was, how do we solve this? We got to solve this. And I had a lot of female-led companies that I invested in, in my accelerator, and they were having the hardest time. Because they, you know, it's well known that women only get about two to four percent of the venture capital investments. So it was cruel. I, as an entrepreneur, at this point, I was I would call myself an investor. I like to build things. I like to find ways to disrupt the status quo. And so for me, this was a real challenge because now you're you're dealing with the regulation. In the United States, if you think of finance in the United States, it is the most important and one of the largest marketplaces and in industries. Because if you finance falls, the whole economy falls. So for the for the U.S. to give in on regulation, it would be unbelievable. Well, guess what? Something happened that was so bizarre that may that hasn't happened for eighty years. The Congress voted in a bipartisan way a new rule called the Jobs Act. Jobs, why? Because in the recession of 2007, that great recession, a lot of jobs were lost. A lot of companies couldn't raise money. The banks ran away. They ran to the hills. They needed capital. So Congress came up with this idea, oh, well, let's change the rules for capital. That's called the Jobs Act. What it does is very simple. It modernizes the Securities Act of 1933, which means at that time when the SEC was formed, you can only raise money if you register your offering with the SEC. Now, today, if you do that, it costs you $2 million in a minimum to do an offering because not only you have to register with the SEC, but you have to go to every single state and negotiate with every state and create an agreement and register with every state. That's 50 states. It's so expensive and time-consuming. Plus, you need a bank like Goldman Sachs to pick you up, which, by the way, not many companies get that uh, opportunity. Maybe a few dozen a year, right? Uh, number of public companies like last year, under 300. So that's not a possibility. So they changed the rule so that if you want to raise money from the general public, you can now with three ways. One is called regulation crowdfunding. You can raise up to a million dollars. Easy, low cost. The second one is called Regulation A+, where you can raise up to 
$50 million, but you have to register with the SEC, very low cost, maybe a dollars to $200,000 instead of the $2 million. And then you had an, a third one called Regulation D506C, which is really for accredited investors, but at least you can go on the internet, on Twitter, you can make an offering. This modernized finance in a way that hasn't happened in 80 years. And when I read that, uh, that document, I said, I'm going to shift immediately. What I want to do is I'm going to create a crowdfunding business. Now, crowdfunding to me and to most people in 2012, when I read the article, that's April 2012, was Kickstarter, Indiegogo. It was reward. You know, you're donating, you're a backer, you're friendly, you're nice, you're a donor, you're super nice. But that's not really capitalism. That's not a true economy where you have to depend on people to give. How about instead of just giving, you get shares? So I figured with the new Jobs Act, we could do that. And that's where Start Engine appeared. Indeed. Uh, and we've seen since then that uh, certainly um, as veterans of the London ecosystem, crowdfunding has become somewhat normal. We've uh, we've got you know, crowd equity platforms like Crowdcube um, have been involved in rather large um, fundraising. So uh, the Challenger Bank, Monzo, has a million customers and they recently raised more than 20 million um, with, uh, with uh, crowdfunding that they did. And, and it works for a lot of these companies as uh, a mix of marketing and uh, customer engagement, sort of own a piece of the business that you're also a customer of, and in a way that you, we've kind of got away from in the past couple of decades. You know, Wall Street played to Wall Street, and uh, big companies had the big bankers, and sort of the you know, mom and pop shops and, and person on the street was was kind of missing out on some of that growth. So there's, there's something interesting there. Um, so the uh, the crowdfunding. Uh, boom has certainly happened here. I guess, how do you view it in the US? Has, has crowdfunding taken off? Do you have any success stories you can kind of share with us? Crowdfunding actually has not yet become a big marketplace. It's growing fast. It's nascent. It's very early. Uh, the first crowdfunding happened uh, for equity in June 2015 when we launched Elio Motors. It's a car company and we raised $17 million for them. Uh, out of from 6,000 enthusiasts who loved the car. And then after that, we went on to doing another regulation, the $1 million rule, which came out in um, May of 2016. So it's still very early, by the way. Uh, we're in the first few years of something that can last for decades. The way I, I look at crowdfunding is this. It's the future of finance. It's modern finance. And it's exactly what you said which is you engage your customers, your users. Imagine if Netflix, which I was your user from the beginning when they were doing this, the DVDs, sent me an email that says, hey, by the way, we're raising money for Netflix. Would you want to put in a thousand bucks? I would have done it because I was a fan. I already liked the service. They said, look, we're, we need money. We're going to streaming, thousand uh, dollar investment, 10,000, what do you want to do? And I would have put money in and I would have made probably a thousand times my money. Can you imagine having access early on to companies like Uber? Now, that's not reality. Reality was just the VC, just the insiders, the Goldman Sachs, they're the ones who had access to those great deals. I have to tell you that infuriates people because they have the feeling that the game is rigged, that the rich always get richer, 
that the ordinary people have no ability to get in on the game and they get screwed. That is a feeling that exists out there. Especially when savings accounts um, are giving the, some of the lowest rates of all time. Uh, there's no way in which person on the street makes money and securities laws have kind of um, raised the barrier. And in the interest of protecting consumers from scams, they've also locked them out of, of the benefit of economic growth. And, and that's a bit of a double-edged sword. And you can see why people would feel that way. Exactly. Well, the solution is very obvious. Crowdfunding. Because for the first time, you have something that's supervised by the Securities Exchange Commission, that's Regulation Crowdfunding, Regulation A+, supervised by them. It, it's really a much better product, where if you look at Kickstarter, Indiegogo, there's no supervision whatsoever, right? It's just a website. It's a company. It puts things on it. It has people put money on credit cards. But here, with Start Engine and the crowdfunding, it is actually, we're acting as a financial concern where we are supervised by FINRA, which is the regulator in the United States that comes every year and looks at what you do. So there is, and we have lawyers inside our company that review every single deal. So yes, there is supervision and yes, there's compliance and rules and regulations. And the opportunity is to build this, what I call the modern financial firm. It's a firm that is raising capital for companies, which is the essence of, uh, of our economy, from the crowd. And then down the road this year, we're going to launch our trading marketplace where you'll be able to also trade those shares once they're uh, available. And that is a big idea. It's a super idea. Uh, before we get into the trading marketplace, I just want to finish the story as well, because my understanding is in 2018, you announced uh, you were going to do your own initial coin offering. Um, for those unfamiliar, of course, initial coin offerings were, were very big through 2000, uh, early part of 2018. Uh, some raised very large amounts of money on the back of sort of the cryptocurrency boom um, and, and the asset bubble that sort of accumulated around Bitcoin, and Ethereum, and, and many of the other cryptocurrencies. Uh, and I think that bubble now having burst, uh, it, we find ourselves in, in this interesting position of people sort of talking about securities tokens being slightly different to the world of ICOs. So talk to me about what, what drew you to the world of ICOs and what drew you to the world of security tokens? And, and how do you reflect on all of that now, given what the market in crypto has done in the last sort of two years? So it was uh, July 2017. I was with my family in, uh, on a cruise in Scandinavia. And I read an article that the SEC, the Security Exchange Commission, publishes talking about something called the DAO, D-A-O. And I had no idea what they were talking about. They were like saying, well, this company, not really a company, uh, on the Ethereum, uh, just got hacked. But what they were doing are security transactions, and we alert everybody to know that these ICO, initial coin offerings, are security transactions. That was in July of 2017. Awakening moment for me. So I started digging so deep. I started learning everything I could in a very short amount of time. Who's doing it? How they're doing it? How are, people, are, how are investors putting their money in? For me, this was crowdfunding. An ICO is crowdfunding. And they actually called it crowd sale. So crowdfunding, crowd sale, it's the same thing. However, 
they were not doing what I was doing. They were not using regulation. I was doing only regulation. So then I wrote, I started writing an article. The first article I wrote was how to get ICOs out of the shadows into regulation. And that article got over 10,000 people who read it. I got a huge amount of comments because I said this, ICOs are great. Use the JOBS Act. It's available to you. What's a big deal? Well, there is a big deal. Here's the big deal. Yes, you can use the JOBS Act to do an ICO, but what it means is you're just saying publicly that these are securities. You're not hiding behind the idea of a utility token, which means that the exchanges, those websites that call themselves exchanges, are not going to take your token. They're not going to trade it. So guess what? That means the investors are not going to invest. It's, it's a catch-22. You're basically... If you use regulation, you're basically killing your offering. So all these entrepreneurs went out and ignored all of that. They ignored the SEC. All the articles are coming out, like from myself and many other people, alerting people to say, look, this is not going to work. Ignored it. And the boom kept growing and growing and growing. And you're seeing $100 million raises, $200 million raises. And yet the alerts were there. The concerns were there. Lawyers were piling in, helping companies for a lot, huge fees. It became a business. But what I loved about it most was it showed that it works, that if you give access to ordinary people, speculative access to new ideas, they want in. Only if there's liquidity. That was the key, the liquidity, which doesn't exist, by the way, in typical private equity investments. There's no liquidity until you either sell the company or you go public, which can take five, seven years, not two weeks, one month. I mean, these tokens were available sometimes a week after they were sold for trading, right? And and you, you can imagine what was going on. So my view and exactly the, the position I took was, let me help the marketplace move away from this wild west of issuing these tokens without any uh, regulation. I think I think that's an interesting uh, kind of place to bring us to today, because where we find ourselves now is uh, there's been definitely the Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S. has begun to uh, issue uh, kind of cease and desist warrants um, and. Uh, investigations, arrests have started of people who did some very silly things, frankly, and, and it's not surprising. But also on the flip side of that, I still see when I speak to a lot of large financial institutions and, and potential investors, a lot of interest in the idea of a security token. Um, but one of the common criticisms I see is that a security token might as well just be a securities offering. You still have all of the paperwork. You still have all of the process. You just sort of happen to have uh, this this token at the end of it instead of a piece of paper. Do you does this is this where sort of your your secondary market your trading platform then comes in? Because if you're not dealing in crypto but you can invest directly in U.S. dollars, if you're regulated, does it then become easier to manage a a trading platform where the shares I've bought, I can sell more quickly. I can buy other shares in other platforms, uh, in, in other sort of ventures really, really quickly. Is that why you've gone down the route of a token? Um, or, or what? what is it that attracted you specifically to the, the underlying technology here? Well, 
in order to build a modern financial firm, you need to automate things as much as possible. So think about this one. Today, if you want to buy Apple shares, you call your broker or Google, go online, let's say to E-Trade, and you buy shares. It takes two days to clear them. What are we talking about here? What does that mean? Two days to clear. You know, I just bought the shares. I should have them right now, right? What's the big deal? No, you don't have them. In two days, you will have them. Why? Because the broker that sold you the Apple has to go to their clearing firm. The clearing firm has to go to the transfer agent. The transfer agent has to make, make sure the shares are available, record them, go back to the clearing firm, go back to uh, and transfer the money, by the way, because my money has to be transferred. That takes time, right? So it's T plus two, trade plus two days. With crypto, we're built to do T plus now. <laughs> T plus 10 minutes. How's 10 minutes? Is that okay with you? Fine. I'll do it in 10 minutes. Maybe one day we'll do it in one minute, right? How do you transfer money in 10 minutes? Well, you could use Bitcoin. You could use Stellar. You could use Ethereum. Imagine all these amazing cryptocurrencies that allow you to transfer money instantly for very, very, very low costs. That's the first part of a securities transaction. You have to show up with the money. The second part is you have to show up with the shares. So by tokenizing the shares, we have a trust system that on the ledger talks about who owns what anonymously in the shares, and we know they exist. There's a transfer agent behind it that has all of those records, but the blockchain is a public view that can be trusted, not hacked, not easily hacked, by the way. Uh, and that is a big innovation. It is. And it's interesting that you mentioned there's a transfer agent sitting behind the scenes to really manage the the, the clean title and the uh, the legal ownership part. Because one of the things I often see is, is people pegging tokens to a real world share. Um, and what they've done is they've, they've kind of uh, got a, a depository of shares, but they're not necessarily managing the updating through a transfer agent quite as cleanly as that and, and, and managing, you know, both sides of the, you know, the paper world and the world of financial services and the token world and, and matching the two one for one quite as transparently. So I think that's an interesting um, place to be. Uh, that kind of brings me full circle to you know kind of what's next for Start Engine. What what are the you know, kind of goals that you have for it going forward? What are the exciting projects, and and where can people go to to find out a bit more about what you do? So for us, Start Engine, our mission is always the same: to help entrepreneurs achieve their dreams by getting access to capital. So this year, last year we did well. We financed, uh, we launched over 250 companies on our platform. The year before was 80. This year, we hope to do a lot more than we did last year. Our goal is to do two things this year, launch more companies successfully and build and launch our secondary marketplace. I think, and, and with that, we have a, a, a technology we built called ERC-1450, which is a, a standard for tokenizing securities. With that in mind and our transfer agent, everything we've built, that whole infrastructure, we hope to build the first true modern financial firm. So if people are interested in talking to us, uh, launching, raising capital, or investing in, in uh, some of the companies on our platform, they can just go to startengine.com, uh, set up an account, and, and, and see what, and just check it out. 
Brilliant. StartEngine.com is where you find out more. And listeners, if you are curious about all things tokenization and blockchain, uh, do check out our podcast, Blockchain Insider, which is available on iTunes now. I wonder if a robot will be driving us to work in the future. They say robots could become more intelligent than humans, which can only be a good thing, right? Stephen Hawking said the rise of robots could be disastrous for mankind. Well, I'm looking forward to robots doing the hard parts of my job. If they're smarter than you, they might kick you out of your job. Artificial intelligence. Innovation or invasion. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash subscribe today. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Uh, Howard, whilst I've got you, um, I just wanted to ask a, a couple of generic questions. We have a lot of budding int- entrepreneurs listen to the show. Um, we we often get asked um, for bits of advice on all things fintech and, and starting businesses. Um, as as a relatively young company ourselves, we're we're only sort of approaching our third birthday. We're about 150 people, and um, we're sort of uh, bootstrapped. So we're we're kind of got an interesting story. Um, but I'm always keen to learn from people who've got this sort of serial entrepreneur track record. Um, what would be the biggest piece of advice you would give to somebody who's just starting out and trying to trying to build a business? They've got an idea they believe in and they don't know what to do to next. Well, to me, it only starts, entrepreneurship starts with a, a, a character trait, which is called grit. And that is the intersection of passion and resilience. So it turns out that most people quit. Most entrepreneurs quit. And when you quit, you have a zero chance of success. I can guarantee that. So the first piece that starts is resilience, which means that you should be willing to have people call you crazy. You should be willing to have people pound the table and tell you to stop and go and get a real job and still continue. Because you're onto something. That doesn't mean your initial idea was the right one. Maybe it's not. Maybe you pivot to something else. But entrepreneurship is basically you're basically making a statement that says, I'm going to build something, something of value that is going to be valuable to others. That could be changing the world, like you know, the Facebook people said they want to change the world, but they could also be improving a service. And in many ways, what I'm doing now with Start Engine by disrupting the financial marketplace is saying, hold on a second, there's a blue ocean out there. There's a market opportunity that no one is going after. I'm going to. And in many ways, it's a crazy idea. Why? Because it, it goes against all of the concepts that people have about securities. For example, everybody always told me, Howard, you're from the game industry. You know nothing about finance. The way stocks are, are, are traded in the marketplace today 
is stocks are sold, they're not bought. And I said, but hold on a second. I'm doing the opposite. Crowdfunding, stocks are bought and not sold. There's no advice. There's no someone on the phone pounding you to buy it, right? I'm going against the common sense of the financial marketplace. That's what an entrepreneur does. So I think your entrepreneurs should do the same thing, is say, look, I'm going to be resilient, passionate, and if it doesn't work, I'll pivot, but I will never give up. Yeah. Um, and then what was the thing that you uh, found out as you were going? Um, so what I mean by this is, you know, the things that um, surprised you, screwed you over, that you wish you kind of knew, because there's always that thing once you once you get a little ways down the road and you're like, oh, damn, I learned my lesson on that one. Um, you learn more from failures than you do uh, from your successes most of the time. Are, are there any examples you can give where, you know, sort of uh, something came up and you and you really had a big lesson? Well, I can tell you, my first company I started when I was in college at the University of Michigan was my business partner, um, was for the Apple II, which was the precursor to the Macintosh. And we were so excited. We launched our first product called Jane. It was doing great. We were celebrated. Steve Jobs invited us to meet him. Steve Wozniak. We had all of, you know, we were in college. We were excited. And then... We had 10 people working at our company. We were making sales. And then the Mac comes out. And basically, we're dead. We run out of money, completely run out of money. And people stopped buying the Apple II. They're buying the Macintosh. We didn't have any software for the Macintosh at that point. We didn't even know we were supposed to do that. We ran out of money. That's a lesson. You know, you have to look at the marketplace. You have to work for the future, not for the present. And you need capital. So we ran out of money. That was a huge, rude lesson. So running out of money is probably one of the biggest reasons why companies fail. There are two reasons I see. One is when the founders fight. That's founder dispute. That's like a divorce. Very hard to recover from. Number two, running out of money. But running out of ideas? You never run out of ideas. You just pivot to something else. So really... Running out of money is the only thing you can control because found a dispute like a divorce, you can't control that. It happens. But running out of money, you can control that, right? Guess what? I am solving that problem. Hey, hey, uh, Howard Marks, thank you so, so much for coming on Fintech Insiders. StartEngine.com to learn more. Um, and uh, what, what message would you leave our listeners with uh, before we, before we uh, close for today? My message is this is the best time ever in the history of business to become an entrepreneur, access capital directly from people who care about you, and build the next big thing. Go for it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Howard. Uh, just a reminder, listeners, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS. We're a challenger consultancy that does all kinds of good stuff. We build challenger brands. Uh, we have, have started building a core banking platform. And of course, uh, we build this little old podcast called Fintech Insider. Um, if you want to learn more about us, you can find out more at 11FS.com uh, or you can email me directly, simon at 11FS.com, if you like anything you've heard today. Please do subscribe and leave us a review. Uh, I just want to thank our amazing, amazing production team for another great show. We'll have more Fintech Insider for you next week.